When the Nixon administration untethered gold and the U.S. dollar, it set shockwaves throughout the world economy and upended America's most political, most important political and military alliances. Why was this decision made? What are the current challenges to the dollar from China's dominance to new forms of currency? Luckily, we have with us tonight two individuals that can help shed light to this topic. Good evening and welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program this evening features Jeffrey Garden, Dean Emeritus of the Yale School of Management and author of Three Days at Camp David, How a Secret Meeting in 1971 Transformed the Global Economy. Richard Fisher, former president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, joins us to moderate this discussion. You can purchase your copies of Three Days at Camp David at Interabing Books, our local bookstore partner. Our audience receives a 10% discount from the Interabing Books online store by using the code DFWWORLD. And remember, the code is good for any of the books in your shopping cart, not just Jeffrey's. The Council will continue to offer top-tier virtual programming through summer and into the beginning of fall, so continue to check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. And now I'd like to invite Richard Fisher to kick off the program. Richard is the former president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, as I mentioned, and most importantly, a recipient of the Council's most prestigious honor, the H. Neil Mallon Award. Richard began his career in private banking before becoming assistant to the Secretary of the Treasury during the Carter administration. He served as Deputy U.S. Trade Administrative uh, Representative in the Clinton administration. His experience also includes working for Secretary of State Henry Kissinger's strategic advisory firm and founder of his own Fisher Capital Management. He holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Harvard University and an MBA from Stanford. I know we're all in for a fascinating conversation. Gentlemen, thank you again. And with that, take it away, Richard. Well, thank you, Liz. And uh, I want to introduce Jeffrey beyond what is stated in the flap of the book. He and I have been friends now for 44 years. Uh, Jeffrey is a true public servant. Uh, he went to Dartmouth and then he went into the Army, where he was a lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne, following, by the way, in the tradition of his father, who was decorated for bravery in the Battle of Porkchop Hill in the Korean War. His dad was also a World War II veteran, a Vietnam War veteran, a very distinguished military officer. And Jeffrey has served in the uh, Nixon and Carter and Ford administration. I had the privilege of meeting Jeffrey when both of us were called to write some decision memoranda for President Carter on economic policy issues. And uh, he's gone on since to be a director at Lehman Brothers, uh, to serve on corporate boards. And as you mentioned, Liz, to be a very distinguished Dean of the Yale School of Management where he still uh, professes. But I wanna tell you the most distinctive feature of Jeffrey Garden and that is he's married to his wife, Ina. They've been married 53 years. She is better known as the Barefoot Contessa, one of the great chefs in the world, probably the most famous 
of all of Jeffrey's classmates at Yale, where he met her. And by the way, his classmates include uh, Robert Reich and Hank Paulson. But as they like to say, the most famous person that was at Yale at that time was Ina Garten, the Barefoot Contessa. So now we're gonna to turn to talk about this fantastic book, uh, Three Days at Camp David. It is a remarkable summary of one of the key events that happened in the global financial world. And I would also argue one of the great events or most important events in terms of really dealing with the US role in the rest of the world and changing uh, what is the dynamic of global diplomacy as well as global financial markets. So Jeffrey, welcome. I want to uh, open this up by asking you why you wrote the book and why you think this is a subject of crucial importance. Jeff? Thank you, thank you, Dick. Um, well, you know, I've written several books and they're all about the global economy and the political dimension of the global economy. <clears throat> but they, they have dwelt very much on big trends. And I wanted to try something else. I wanted to identify a single event, really focus in on it, focus in on it in great detail so that you knew the people, you knew what was in their heads, you knew what was influencing them both in terms of the global environment and their own background. Um, and you could really feel the decision but in doing that, you really got also a, uh, a, a larger picture. So, you know, I was looking around for what, what event was, what, what landmark event could I write about? Uh, one that most people really didn't know a lot about. And secondly, which brought to bear domestic economic policy, international economic policy and foreign policy. And um, this event that uh, I wrote about at, at Camp David, three days at Camp David, was um, a weekend in which President Nixon and six of his top advisors um, met in secret. Nobody knew about this meeting at the time. And they made a very momentous decision. Uh, since 1944, the dollar had been backed by gold. That was the heart of the Bretton Woods Agreement, the agreement that basically established the post-World War II economic system. And this link between the dollar and gold, it was $35 for an ounce of gold, was irrevocable. And uh, President Kennedy and President Johnson went out of their way time and again to say the dollar was as good as gold. And it meant that anybody outside the US who held dollars could come to Washington, come to Fort Knox, and basically say they want gold for their dollars. Uh, and that was uh, a cornerstone of the prosperity that uh, ensued all during the 50s and 60s the miraculous recovery uh, of Western Europe and Japan, the almost unprecedented prosperity in the US, which was a different kind of prosperity than we have known since, because it was a middle-class prosperity. It was, it was growth 
that basically spread throughout the country. Um, we didn't have the extremes of wealth and income that, that we have today. And so it's a real, it's a real question. If this succeeded so well, why did Nixon and his advisors decide to de-link the dollar from gold? Or to put it another way, why did they take a sledgehammer to the Bretton Woods uh, agreements? And that's, that's the story that I told. Um, and uh, I think that what they did has had reverberations right through today. Well, we'll get into some of those reverberations, but I think the important thing for our audience and for people that are looking at the book is a description of the characters that were involved. You had John Conley, who we know of well here in Texas. You had Arthur Burns, you had Henry Kissinger, had George Schultz, you had Paul Volcker at that meeting. And uh, I wonder if you can give us a little insight into how that impacted the dynamic of what President Nixon was seeking to do. Well, first, let me, let me explain why they delinked the dollar from gold. Right. Um, Good. It turned out that during the 50s and the 60s, um, the United States was exporting a huge amount of dollars. We had big military commitments. We had big foreign aid programs. Uh, and the world wanted to use dollars, so we printed them because global trade was expanding and the dollar was the currency. There was no other currency that people could use internationally. Um, and it, it turned out that there were so many dollars abroad that we actually didn't have enough gold to make the conversion that we committed to. Um, in 1950, for example, I think 1950, 1955, we had 160% of the gold we needed to exchange for dollars abroad. But by 1971, we only had 25%. So the, the, in, effect, in effect, the emperor had no clothes. Um, in addition, the administration felt that the value of the dollar was, was too strong. It had been set in 1944 when the US was you know, so preeminent. But in, the, in, the two, in, in a sense, the, the dollar was a victim of its own success because in the 50s and the 60s, West Germany and Japan emerged as major powerhouses when it came to manufactured goods. And by 1971, we were running our first trade deficit since the late 1800s. Uh, the Congress was up in arms and proposing major protectionist legislation. So Nixon knew something had to be done. In a sense, the post-World War II era had ended and, and we needed a new system to replace it. And at the heart of this decision was, we have to delink the dollar from gold. We have to allow the dollar to be devalued. So that was the that was why they did it, even though they had, there was so much prosperity around. Now you but asked, you, that, but you had Jeffrey, you had a fierce nationalist in John Conley, right? You had a delicate internationalist in Paul Volcker. You had a, an advocate for total free floating currency in George Schultz. 
there were all these different views. And I wonder if you could just give us a little insight into how these personalities came to this decision. Well, that, that's, that's a really good way to put it because um, Nixon knew something had to be done. He didn't really have a, a grasp of the international financial situation. In fact, only one person there did, and that was Paul Volcker. But let, let me just take one step back. What was remarkable about the people around Nixon was that most people had never heard of them. Um, and if they had heard of them, they heard of them in a much different context. Uh, as Richard said, uh, uh, John Connolly was the Secretary of the Treasury. And in many ways, he would have been very much at home in the Trump administration. He was a fierce nationalist. He basically, his motto was, let's screw the foreigners before they screw us. He had no interest at all in the global financial system. And he, he arrived in Washington thinking that the Europeans and the Japanese had taken advantage of us over the last two decades and we, they owe us big. In a contrast, there was Paul Volcker who was just, uh, he was the undersecretary of treasury, um, but he was the only one there who really understood the global financial system. Um, he, but he too realized the dollar had to be devalued. And the only way to do that was to delink it from gold. But he really felt, okay, you devalue the dollar and then you relink. He wanted fixed exchange rates. Conley, Conley couldn't have cared less about what the system was. He just wanted to be sure that we could take advantage of, of the Europeans and, and, and the Japanese who he thought were really uh, ungrateful for all the help we had given them. So you had Conley, you had Volcker, who was a, a real traditionalist. And then you had George Shultz, who at the time no one had heard of either. He had just come from the uh, being dean at the University of Chicago Business School. And his expertise was as a labor negotiator. But coming from Chicago, he, he had very strong, um, very strong free market leanings. He couldn't understand why currencies would be linked at all. He just thought you let them float just like any other commodity and let the supply and demand uh, take their course. Um, <clears throat> now, there was one other person there, uh, Pete Peterson, who had come from industry. Again, no one had heard of him. Of course, he went on to be a major figure. Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a Master's in International Studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. Uh, on Wall Street, but at the time he was an uh, industrialist and he had a whole different theory, which was we blame foreigners too often for our own problems and that the key to American competitiveness would be that we invest heavily in ourselves that we invest in technology and that we invest in the workforce. He, 
he, he didn't think that changing the value of currencies or forcing other countries to open their markets would do anything, uh, anything as much as the kind of investments that we should make. So Nixon had surrounded himself by these guys. And there was one other player who wasn't at Camp David because he was uh, secretly negotiating with the North Vietnamese, and that was Henry Kissinger. Uh, Kissinger became a major player in the saga because when the US announced, when President Nixon announced that the dollar was no longer linked to gold, um, <clears throat> when that happened, uh, the Allies went crazy. They couldn't understand how the U.S. could do it. And, and, and as if that wasn't bad enough or as if that wasn't a big enough shock, Nixon said that until the Allies agree to a substantial U.S. devaluation, we would put 10% tariffs on all their sales to the U.S. And we saw a 10% across the board tariff. Of course, Conley loved this. You know, this was a real demonstration of uh, American leverage, but the Europeans and the Japanese felt this was an enormous bad faith that we had led the world in terms of uh, preaching free trade. And here we are putting up a protectionist barrier. And, and so the allies were very, very upset and Kissinger had to be wielded in right after the meeting in order to keep the alliance intact. So you had Nixon, who really didn't know much about the global economy, forging a common position among people who had very different views. Um, and, and he was very skillful. And I have a lot of uh, um, friends who have read this book and they say, have you tried to rehabilitate Nixon? And I said, no, no, actually, I'm just looking at the situation as it was then. I'm not filtering it through what we know through Watergate, but in 1969, 1970, 1971, there were many areas in which Nixon was actually a very skillful commander in chief. And you know, it, it seems Jeffrey that he didn't understand monetary affairs, but he did understand that we were no longer omnipotent. He's the one who opened the door with China. He dealt with Russia. Uh, he also, it seems to me, one of the great differences was to, despite all this legacy of Watergate, et cetera, he worked with Congress. He had a Congress you could work with. And I'm just wondering about, I don't want to leave too far ahead here, but I see a lot of similarities in what you just described to the situation today. I can, you mentioned Conley being sort of a mini Trump. Uh, I came from the central bank, as you know, and I hear people uh, saying that uh, Powell's another Arthur Burns. <laughs> so uh, Burns was also in the room. We need to remind our viewers of that. But there are differences, and regardless of the image and legacy that is stuck on President Nixon, he was more of an internationalist than people give him credit for. And again, he could work the Congress which doesn't seem possible today, either with Donald Trump in the White House or with the current president of the White House. Do you have any thoughts on that and what the similarities are and the differences between what you covered in that book at that time and what we have now? Yeah, that's a really, I think that's a very crucial question. 
And let me say, when I started to write the book, I was really intending to write a contained history, uh, you know, a history of a momentous decision and, and what followed from it. Uh, and as I was writing, I became much more conscious of some of the parallels to today and also some of the major differences. So I, 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 I like to talk about that for a second, but the one thing I want to make really clear is that history never repeats itself exactly. I think we all know that. So what's, I think what's important about the book is that it gives really interesting and sometimes instructive context for today, but you can, you can never make a direct you know, a really direct parallel. So uh, let me, let me, let me um, talk about some of the similarities. Um, Richard, as you, as you astutely said, uh, Nixon understood that we were coming to an end of an era. He, he believed that American leadership was possible in the future, but that, that the the, the relationship between the U.S. and its allies and the U.S. and China and the U.S. and Russia had to change. That this was no longer, it was no longer possible for the United States to be so omnipotent and so powerful and act like it was because that really wasn't the situation. And in the particular meeting that I wrote about, they realized that on the economic side, on the financial side, um, the dollar was just uh, uh, shouldering too much burden. Um, and, and also that other countries needed to open their markets to us uh, in a much more reciprocal way because we had been giving them a lot of concessions. So I think one, one kind of similarity here is, I think we're coming to an end of an era now um, you know, over the last several decades, the U.S. is really ha has had to cede more and more power, um, not necessarily leadership, but we have to, we need the cooperation of other countries more and more than we ever did before. I think that's true, and Richard, you were right in the middle of, you know, the, the, the global financial crisis in, in, um, 2008, it's true with the pandemic, it's true with climate change. There's almost no big problem in which the need for stronger alliances and stronger cooperation, even with countries that we don't care, care for, um, is really important. So I think we're, we're entering another era in which we have to reconsider how the U.S. relates to other countries. So that's 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 one similarity. I think a second is in terms of economic competition. I go back to what Pete Peterson said. Um, you know, we can blame the Europeans and we can blame the Chinese, and I'm not saying that. You know, that I'm certainly not saying that without blame. But until we get our act together at home, until we really begin to invest in technology and particularly the, the, the human capital until we build the, the infrastructure, not just, you know, we keep talking about roads and ports, but um, the, the, the cyber infrastructure. Um, we're, 
we're not going to be anywhere near as competitive or prosperous as you know as as we have the potential for um so i think that's another kind of parallel uh one big difference is and you alluded to that richard is that in 1971 nixon was able to get a consensus behind big policies and you know nixon uh republican obviously he faced both a House and a Senate that was controlled by Democrats, not one or two votes. I mean, Democrats really controlled them. And yet he managed to get a coalition of uh, uh, liberal Democrats, I'm, I'm sorry, conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. And that was a big part of our political establishment. And so when it came time to deal with the dollar and gold and all the associated issues. He had enormous support. Now, he was very skillful and his guys were very skillful in, in cultivating that support, but it was there. And that's, a, I think that's a huge difference from today. And another difference is, you know, in 1971, I mean, I found this very interesting. We were just beginning to experience what globalization was all about. We had a trade deficit. Congress was worried about unemployment that was coming from automation and, and imports. Um, but we, our, our interaction with the rest of the world was still uh, in its infancy. Today, of course, we're so incredibly linked to other countries that our room for maneuver is nowhere near as great. So I think that the Biden administration, in a way, faces challenges that are much deeper than Nixon did. Um, and I'm not sure it has the same level of talent that Nixon did. So um, it's a lot, of, a lot of sobering thought here. Well, and of course, back then, as you mentioned in your book, uh, Adenauer was in power in Germany, de Gaulle was in power in France. Uh, they had their own image of themselves. They were rising in prominence post-World War II. They were difficult to sell on this announcement and the program the, to delink. Now we have Xi Jinping in particular. Uh, Nixon recognized China, but now they are the opposite pole of what we're doing now. But um, I'm just wondering if you, you know, I know our audience, I've already seen a question here on uh, the dollar itself. Just as a footnote, Jeffrey, as you know, dollar bond issuance and dollar utilization actually has gone up dramatically in the last two years uh, and somehow seems to increase. Well over 75% of commercial transactions in the world are denominated in dollars now. But is there an alternative? Chinese renminbi, I wonder what your thoughts on there. Uh, the euro, baskets of currencies, how do you view this now against the background of what we set in place by this meeting in 1971? Great question. And uh, I want to get to that, but I left something out, which I, I think we should just uh, interject. When you asked me about the similarities and the differences, right. I should have talked about inflation because uh -huh. in 1971, inflation was rising. And you know the inflation stemmed in good part from the Vietnam War and President Johnson's failure to raise taxes 
in a timely way. And so when Nixon became president, inflation was, a, was, was beginning to, to be a real problem. And, and Nixon held a very strong view that in the trade-off between inflation and employment, employment was more important. He, he had been vice president under Eisenhower and he ran against JFK. Um, and he was convinced he lost that close election because the Eisenhower administration decided to deal with controlling inflation as opposed to stimulating the economy and creating more jobs. So Nixon as president was extremely clear to his advisors that he would allow inflation to flare if that meant increasing employment. Very clear about that. Now in, in, in other circumstances, you might've had a head of the central bank who said, well, if you're gonna do that, I'm gonna tighten interest rates quite, you know, quite dramatically. But his, his uh, Fed chairman was Arthur Burns, a very complex person. Because Burns was, above all, he wanted Nixon's admiration. And I go into this a lot, you know, because personality plays a major role in all these decisions. And, and, and Burns simply, he wanted to be in, in uh, Nixon's good graces. Um, but he also was a, was a distinguished economist and he, he knew he had to do something about inflation. And he came to the conclusion that neither fiscal nor monetary policy was the right policy. But in, in fact, that inflation was being caused by labor unions, which were negotiating ever higher wages, which made companies raise prices. And it came in, you know, it was a spiral, a wage price spiral. And so rather than focus on interest rates, Arthur Burns decided he, he wanted a, a wage price freeze and he convinced Nixon to do it. It was a terrible decision. And of course, when those controls came off, prices really shot up. So inflation played a big role in the, in the in Nixon years. And you know, when I think about it today, and Richard, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna let you off the hook here because you've forgotten more about this than I know. Um, we face a very tricky situation now. Uh, I don't know if it's a parallel, but certainly, um, the Biden administration is very focused on getting everybody back to work. And they're saying that, you know, all the inflationary pressures are transient. And I hope they understand that you can't deal with inflation once it's totally recognized, that there are lead times here and there's expectations. Um, but let's put it this way, the approaches to inflation in 71 and today are of more than just academic interest because a lot of people are looking at the 70s and saying, are we there again? So Richard, let me just, let me just throw this ball to you for a second because um, I've told you all I know, you know about the analogy, but how, how do you see it? Well, of course, Jeffrey, you and I worked together when it reached its zenith uh, in the Carter administration because it keeps growing and growing and growing. Once you build in behavioral patterns and expectations, 
And now we have a decision rule at the Federal Reserve, which is different than anything before, which is basically we will be reactive. That is, once we see the whites of the eyes of inflation, and we don't think it's going to be, quote, transitory, if that's the case, then we will take less accommodative monetary policy. You pointed out correctly, it takes a while. There's a lag between when you adjust policy and it works its way into the real economy. I'm not talking about the financial markets. They can react because they're nervous on a moment's notice. But to get companies to reorient their capex and their receivables and payables and how they lag, whether they don't lag, et cetera, it takes time to work its way through the system. So the current decision rule is risky because if the Fed says, gee, we are wrong, and then they tighten, first, you got a time lag to make that decision. And secondly, another 12 to 18 months to affect the real economy, during which time you could have, as we saw, you and I were there when it was the most painful, um, you could have expectations change, confidence diminished, and it begins to grip on its own. So that, that is the risk that we're running here. And we'll just have to see if the Fed is right. I will note that in his last press conference, <laughs> Chairman Powell seemed a little bit less confident in that decision rule and really is, seems to be backing away from it slightly. Uh, but there are these similarities, as you mentioned, that the Biden administration is gonna have to deal with. And it is a good question whether he has this kind of talent not just because he's President Biden, I'm not being critical here, but you document in this book the incredible talent pool that Nixon had to draw. It, it truly was a remarkable group of people, many of whom became lions. Paul Volcker, the Moses of central banking, he evolved into. Pete Peterson, as you mentioned, evolved into one of the great financiers of all time. Uh, and I will say one thing about Arthur Burns at the Fed, and this is what haunts everybody there. No chairperson wants to go down with Arthur Burns's legacy. At the end of that big table where the FOMC meets, at one end is the chairman's office. You go through a door. The other is you go through a door and it's, they've got a portrait gallery of former Fed chairs. Nobody looks at Arthur Burns' portrait. He's viewed as a big mistake. And as you mentioned, it was because he wanted to please the president. And the question now being debated in markets, is Powell want to please this president? Is he looking for a reappointment when it comes up in February, towards the end of the year, they'll decide? Um, or is he really preserving the independence of the central bank? I can tell you this, I know Jay very well. We text each other, we play golf together. We don't talk about policy anymore, I'm not allowed to. But he doesn't want to be Arthur Burns. And that should be hopefully a saving grace, we'll see. Let me ask you one other question, which fascinated me as I wrote the book. Because in 1971, there was a huge debate about the so-called Phillips curve, the trade-off between inflation and unemployment. And a lot of distinguished economists said, the Phillips curve is no longer a guide for policy. And a lot of them admitted that they knew how to stimulate the economy, but they really didn't know how to deal with inflation. That the kind of inflation they were seeing had not existed in the US 
except maybe in wartime. Um, do you think that we really understand this phenomenon any better today? You know, I mean, I, I, as I follow the current thinking, there obviously is a lot of, a lot of uh, conflict among, you know, so-called experts. But here it is, fifty years later. Are we more sophisticated about uh, inflation, or in a sense, did Paul Volcker have it right that there is only one way to do it, and that is to tighten rates to the point where the economy softens, and everyone. And, and to do it in such a way that there's no doubt that the expectations of, of continuous inflation are slayed. Are we, are we smart? Are we smarter than that? Or are we basically destined to use these very crude instruments? As you said earlier, history uh, repeats itself or at least rhymes. Yeah. I'm not sure we're smarter. There's, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal this morning, which recalls Milton Friedman, who was in the picture that was just thrown up here with Arthur Burns and President Nixon, that uh, inflation is ev everywhere and anywhere a monetary phenomenon. And we'll just have to see. The monetary base now M2 has increased at 36, uh, actually 39.4% year over year. Uh, his formula was MV equals PT, if you remember. So M is going up, the velocity is not so big, that's the V. But price is going up, and then the question is, what happens with transactions in the economy? So we'll have to see, Jeffrey. Um, I'm not sure we're any smarter than we were before. The point is, when you have an accommodative Fed and you have aggressive fiscal policy, you run a significant risk of inflationary pressure. But I don't want to deviate again. Yeah, no, I'm going to come back to the dollar. From the book, the dollar yeah. again. It it this was driving part of the decision. Um, were there other proposals that were put on the table, by the way, just so that our listeners can understand this uh, in dealing with this serious well, they, crisis that Nixon saw? And I mean, there were two, there were two ways to go. Well, actually, there were three. One was to go back to fixed exchange rates, but just allow more flexibility. Bretton Woods, that Bol that's what Volcker sort of That's what Volcker wanted. Right. right. Um, a second was to um, go to floating exchange rates. That's what that's what um, Schultz, Schultz. and that's where we ended up. Um, I think a third was to try to replace gold with what a, a, a creation of international money from the IMF, which they called special drawing rights. And people felt, you know what, if we're short of gold, let's create something else and have a fixed system that was backed by, by something solid. But they did create special drawing rights, but in the event, the market, the private markets were just, they weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't buying it. So, um, you know, we went to floating rates. But I'd like to come to your point now about the future of the dollar. And let me just put it this way, that anybody who thinks they really know knows nothing. Um, but it is, if you had said to any of those guys around the table, we can remove gold entirely and the dollar will get even stronger and it will stay that way for decade after decade, I don't think they would have believed it. And the question is why, why did that happen? Um, to me, it's not, I mean, looking back, it's not, uh, it's not such a mystery. 
Um, there really wasn't an alternative. You know, no other country grew so big and so powerful that you would want to use their currency and no other country wanted their currency to be so ubiquitous. So there it was, everybody had been using the dollar and kind of the network effects just continued. Second is that actually the world had a lot more confidence in US policy and US institutions than it did most other countries. And they really focused on our institutions, uh, uh, you know, independent Fed, a very credible SEC, the rule of law, um, the way we made decisions, you know, the, the, the depth of the democracy. So I don't think anyone worried that we would, they would put their money in the US and they wouldn't be able to get it out, which was a lot more than you could say for, uh, you know, for other countries. What worries me about going, first of all, I think it's, an, it's a great advantage for the US to have this preeminent currency. I mean, it certainly allows us to finance our deficits at a much lower cost and a much easier way than we would otherwise do because everybody is willing to hold dollars. Um, but here's what I worry about. I think that we have begun or we have been using economic sanctions far too indiscriminately. And that it is a fact that the Europeans and the Chinese are really looking for a way to uh, get out from under the US dominance of the plumbing of the international financial system. I mean, we levied secondary sanctions on the Europeans and they find that a total humiliation. Um, so I think if there is a way around the dollar, um, the Europeans and the, and the Chinese are, are, they're certainly looking for it. And you have to you have to believe that they're going to be fairly uh, fairly creative, especially we continue to use the sanctions. Secondly, I don't pretend to fully understand the digital world um, and digital currencies, but when I look at China, I'm not so worried about the RMB, but they're way ahead of us in terms of central bank digital currencies. And they're going to use this digital currency, not only within China, but with countries that are trading heavily with China. And before we know it, unless we're really alert, I think that a sizable part of the world, given, given Chinese trade, may actually be using China's central bank digital currency. I mean, I can't prove it, and I, I, I'm sure nobody knows whether that's the case. But you know, we are entering a, a really new era when it comes to digital currency and, and you know, uh, even set aside the cryptocurrency. Um, I think that the younger generations really don't trust government when it comes to a lot of things, including currency. So uh, I'm not predicting that the dollar is gonna be eclipsed, but I just think we are facing a situation that we haven't faced before. Um, and what our strong military position, which has also, uh, I think, been a, a cause of people coming to the dollar in terms of crisis. I think that's going to count for less as we go forward. And the nature of uh, warfare is not going to be tanks and planes, but cyber. So, Jeffrey, you mentioned there was 
confidence in those US institutions back then. Now we have a hyper divisive society, exactly. cultural issues, racial issues. Both sides are heavy day fix about how they're supposed to proceed Democrats and Republicans. Uh, it's almost impossible for a president to deal with Congress as opposed to Nixon being able to do it. Um, so there are those significant obstacles now. I would only mention this on the Chinese renminbi and the digital yuan, which is also Xi Jinping is using it for control uh, because it's driven by blockchain, right. which is a remarkable thing when you think about it. I mean, for forever, we worked off what the Medici's created in terms of double entry accounting. And now we have blockchain, which is the first innovation in accounting in hundreds of years. Uh, so the, with blockchain, as we know, uh, Xi Jinping and the CCP, the Communist Party, can track down every single transaction and use it to allocate credit or to penalize people who you don't want to have credit. So it may not be as ubiquitously used, although they're way ahead of us on this front. And that raises an issue actually as to the Yuan because they got 4% of the SDR basket, big deal, but they haven't opened their capital account. And I think it would be helpful if you explain to our listeners the importance of having an open capital account, which the Europeans have. The Euro is the only really deep liquid pool that is an alternative to the dollar. And their central bank has been even more accommodative than ours. Uh, so I'm just curious what your views on, on that are in terms of the need to have an open capital account in China and whether that limits or maybe gives them an advantage. I'm not sure. Your views on that? Well, um, let me say my starting point is we're dealing with a lot of factors all of which are very new. So anyone has to be somewhat humble about predicting what's gonna happen. Mm. Um, I, I don't think that China's currency will become an international currency until they do open their, their, their capital account, until money can flow in and out of China without restrictions. Um, but, you know, they, they have a, this policy called a Belt and Road Initiative, which is basically financing infrastructure throughout Eurasia, now in, now in, uh, in South America, certainly in Africa. And I just worry that these, many of these countries are not going to care so much about the ulterior motive of control. Um, but the ease of which they can actually um, obtain currency and the fact that they are not going to be subject to the whole range of U.S. foreign policy goals, um, you know, from, from elections to human rights uh, and, and, you know, labor standards. And so we could be, China's international role could creep up on us. They're not gonna have, the currency is not gonna be widely used in the US and Europe, and that's obviously a really big thing until, until they, they totally liberalize their financial markets. So that's way off. 
But I think in terms of foreign policy leverage that comes with currency, um, it would be a real mistake to read them out, uh, especially because of the digital capabilities. Um, so Jeffrey, so, go ahead, please. No, so I think that's why I think the digital world is gonna create a new era. Um, it's most of the people who are in charge are of a different generation than those that basically live in a digital society. I think that when you look, if you looked at the internet in 1990, 1992, 93, you never would have been able to, to calculate what it would mean to the world. And I think that's where we are with this digital stuff and this crypto stuff. So I, I tend to be um, very cautious about predicting American economic power uh, as though nothing's been a confronted. Well, you and I are not, we didn't grow up in a digital world. <laughs> we grew up in an analog world. Analog world. Uh, so it's hard to understand, but we're getting close to the end here. I, I wanna ask you to just sort of summarize. What do you think the Biden administration uh, can learn from the Nixon experience and what you documented well, when those guys, when the Nixon guys met at Camp David, they had a, a very extensive analysis of the global economy, US role in it, how the ball could bounce in the future and what we needed to do long-term. They may not have followed that script exactly, but they had a, a, a real understanding of the alternatives. And I just hope that the, the Biden administration has done the same thing. Um, so that's one. Uh, I, well, let me just say the same thing, meaning uh, taking account of all the underlying changes and looking ahead as far as you can, not to say this is where we're gonna be, but here's the range of possibilities. And following from that, the men who, and they were all men then, uh, today, of course, it would be men and women. Um, they were, had, Nixon surrounded himself with great diversity. He, I mean, the difference between Schultz and, and Connolly and Volcker and Burns and Peterson, I mean, it was really quite something to get them in the room and basically make decisions that everybody could agree to. Could agree to. I don't know if Biden has this kind of diversity. I mean, I hope he does. I don't follow it so closely. But when you're making really big decisions, the most dangerous thing is, is to have everybody feel exactly the same way and not, and not present any challenges. Um, and third, you know, Kissinger was acutely aware that the there was a relationship between our international economic policy and our foreign policy. And uh, in the end, they, they, they were really merged. Um, I hope that Biden is able to do that too. There's no Kissinger in this administration. Um, and there's no Connolly who basically brought the opposite viewpoint. Um, so I hope that, uh, I hope that this whole question of 
inter interlinking foreign policy and economic policy is taken very seriously by Biden. And I, that, that I think is one of the lessons of the Camp David meeting. Well, I'm gonna hold up the book here as a shill because I think <laughs> I really, not just because I'm a monetary policy nerd or have spent time as a negotiator on behalf of our country as you have, because it gives you incredible insight to how policy is developed and how important it is that the personalities that are involved influence the decision. And the way you documented this, Jeffrey, uh, I just found it spellbinding. And I'm not saying this because I'm a friend. I'm just saying it's really well written and it draws you into understanding these broader issues that are at stake in terms of the different perspectives that were brought to bear under a president who did surround himself with inordinately capable people. Now, the only thing I regret about doing this virtually and for our audience is it, you'd have to understand, Jeffrey's are, what they say is a real mesh. I mean, he's a lovable character, he's a cute guy and he's not just a brilliant intellectual, but he understands people. And that's what's so well documented in this book. So Jeffrey, we're at the end here. I wanna thank you. Uh, I wanna thank you also for your friendship over 40, almost 45 years now. And had we been live, I would have insisted that Ina accompany you so we could not only give people food for thought, but food for their stomachs as well. And she, surely would, she surely would have put, on, uh, put a couple of pounds on everybody there. <laughs> she has I think I'll turn it back to the uh, council and thank Wonderful. you, Jeffrey, very much. Thank you. Well, thank you both for this amazing conversation. We truly appreciate you guys spending your evening with us and we wish it had been in person as well. And we'd like to invite you to come in person whenever you feel like coming to Dallas and Richard, please feel free to come and moderate that conversation. I would be delighted. Um, as, as Richard mentioned, please do pick up a copy of the book at Interrafang. We love that local bookstore and we appreciate their support. If you're not a member of the council yet, please join us. We'd love to see you more. And I look forward to meeting you all in person again soon. It's been way too long since I've seen most of you all. Visit dfwworld.org for more information on membership and programming. And thank you again for joining us and have a great night.